Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Susanna Campbell, the author of the book Global Governance and Local Peace Accountability and Performance in International Peacebuilding. Susanna Campbell is an assistant professor at American University's School of International Service. She's published extensively on an international intervention in conflict-affected countries, focusing on how global governance organizations interact with the microdynamics of conflict and cooperation. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Beth. Happy to be here. So how did you get interested in this topic and what led you to write the book? So I think that my interest in this topic actually started even before I wrote the book. Um, So I was working before I became an academic, I was actually working in the field of global, global governance and in the field of conflict prevention and peace building. And I was working for, in the 1990s, for an organization called the Council on Foreign Relations, which was focused at that point in time through the Center for Preventive Action on trying to understand what the different tools and approaches were that international actors such as the United Nations could deploy to prevent countries from breaking out into civil war or to help them recover from civil war after after the end of a conflict. And I realized as I began to kind of look at the all the policy discussions that were happening in New York that this was an incredibly ambitious agenda that these international actors the UN national National governments, such as the U.S. government or national or non-governmental organizations, were actually trying to go into war-torn countries and transform the nature of their institutions, right, of their relationship between state and society. And so I saw both kind of the goodwill behind this effort, but also the potential difficulty that one could face. And I wanted to go see what it was like for organizations to actually do this on the ground. And then I went to work for the United Nations on the ground in a war zone. So at that point, it was Burundi. And so the the book really tells a story of how international actors, when trying to kind of transform other societies through peace building, how they are unable to easily understand and relate to those contexts. And so that kind of basic realization came from working for an international organization in a war zone and realizing how difficult it was to make this kind of big bureaucracy respond to a highly dynamic, highly politicized context. The primary findings of your research are based in Burundi. Right. Can, can you tell us what was happening there in the late 1990s and how Burundi came to be central to your research? So in the Burundi is a fascinating case um, and also a kind of very sad case in a lot of ways. So 
in the in the 1990s, Burundi became the focus of a, a lot of kind of outsized attention, meaning that Burundi is a very small country. I think it was about eight million inhabitants, a population of about eight million at that point in time in the late 1990s, and it's really not geostrategically very important, right? It's in the it's in the middle of Central Africa. It doesn't have a lot of global resources. It's not highly influential on any of the kind of surrounding countries. And yet, an enormous amount of international support and attention was poured into Burundi to try to prevent Burundi from becoming another Rwanda. So the idea was that the international community had failed Rwanda by not actually acting to prevent the 1994 genocide. And at the same time, in 1993, you had a war break out in Burundi. And so international actors were saying, well, you know what? Burundi has a lot of the same political dynamics and the same ethnic division of 85% Hutu and 15% Tutsi as Rwanda has, and we want to make sure that it does not actually turn into genocide. Of course, there was war going on, but the international community was most focused on genocide. And so what you had in the 1990s is you had the kind of continuation of war. And then really this, when the war began in 1993, and in 1999, you had the beginning of what was a very comprehensive peace process called the Arusha peace process that ended in 2001 in the adoption, or sorry, ended in 2000 in the adoption of the Arusha Agreement on Peace and Reconciliation, which was one of the most comprehensive and arguably a highly successful peace agreement that negotiated an accord between 19 warring parties in Burundi. And so it was this, it was in many ways this very successful case of a war to peace transition where you had key domestic actors and politicians and armed groups who wanted to buy into a peace agreement. And you had international actors who showed up at the right place in the right time to facilitate that agreement. And you talk in the book about going to Burundi and in your work seeing that different organizations had different levels of success in their ability to affect change. So can you tell us about who these global governors are in this context and and what those peace building activities are? I look at five different organizations and the basic idea, you know, in the book, I use the terminology global governance organization, which is a kind of general term used to describe any international organization or international institution that operates across borders and tries to, in this case, actually support international peace, security, development, humanitarian relief. And that allows us to kind of see that these organizations were established at the global level. They're trying to, they're kind of governed at this global level. And by global, I mean that their boards are made up of people from across different countries. And they're usually based in a northern, so in this case, a European or a North American country. And yet they're trying to create change at the local level. And by local, I mean domestic. 
So in this case, it was local is Burundian, anything happening within the domestic context of Burundi. And the, the specific organizations that I look at in this book are um, the United Nations peacekeeping missions in Burundi. And there were multiple peacekeeping missions over the kind of 15-year period that I study. Then I look at um, the UN Development Program, which is the organ of the UN that is focused on solely on development with a kind of broad ranging poverty reduction mandate. I look at CARE International, which is an international non-governmental organization also focused on poverty reduction, on humanitarian relief, and on peace building. I look at the Burundi Leadership Training Program, which was operated out of the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in, here in DC. And that was a kind of conflict resolution dialogue focused program. And I look at DFID, the UK Department for International Development. And these are the way that I set this up is that these are really kind of typical cases of these global governors, these international actors who are trying to actually engage in some type of peace building work. And the, the different types of peace building work and peace building is yet again, this kind of big umbrella concept, which is really self-referential. So it describes any effort by an international actor or national actor. In this case, I focused on international actors. Any effort to address what that organization believes to be a determinant precursor cause driver of peace. And so it's really based on these kind of ideas about what people think will build peace in a country. And that's one of the first challenges, which I can talk about more in a minute. But these specific activities that are being implemented range from kind of dialogue activities, which involve bringing a group of, say, political parties to the table and helping them to have conversations that they can't actually have within the kind of parliament, right? So it's this kind of side discussion, side consultation process. Or other activities involve, you know, rehabilitating army or military barracks to enable um, a newly integrated military, which now included both rebels and military actors to enable them to have enough space to actually reside so that they're not living in the population and potentially committing human rights abuses against the population. So there are various efforts to help this country actually develop more democratic systems that enable it to guarantee human rights, to actually have a well-functioning, well-structured military, to um, operate in a kind of peaceful, democratic, liberal, democratic system, and to operate along with rule of law. And those are the kind of overall normative guidelines of any peace-building intervention, which is trying to take this kind of war-torn state and help it to develop institutions that are believed to actually support this the sustainability of peace. These organizations you spoke of have these representation in the country and, and what you refer to as country offices. And mm -hmm. 
In the research, you found two important factors that affect their success in these peace-building activities. You mentioned formal peace-building accountability and informal local accountability. Can you tell us about these factors and how they impact the country office's ability to be effective? So the, the, basic, the basic argument that I make in the book is that these international actors, these global governance organizations are designed to fail at peace building because they are designed to be accountable to global stakeholders, not local stakeholders, right? So in the case of, say, um, the UK Department for International Development, DFID, DFID is fundamentally accountable to the UK taxpayers and then to the UK parliament, not to the Burundian population that it's actually trying to help. And that sets up a dynamic whereby the UK taxpayers and the UK parliament are telling DFID to, you know, deliver this type of intervention, this type of project in this location over this time period with this much money. And so the incentives are really to kind of do things rather than change things. And yet peace building aims to change things. It aims to change a war-torn society into one that can sustain peace. And from a kind of organizational theory perspective, peace building aims to change a changing context, right? So it aims to create this kind of transformation in institutions in a context where things are changing all the time because it was war affected. There's often still war and violence going on. And it's a very unpredictable environment. And what we know from organizational theory is we know that to change a changing context, organizations have to learn. And learning here is not just kind of intaking information, right? Learning here in the conceptualization that I use is the idea developed by Chris Argerus and Donald Schoen, who were um, Harvard academics in the 70s and 80s. And they came up with this kind of performance-based idea of learning, which meant that an organization can intake all of the information at once. But this kind of information only matters when the organization uses that information to reduce the gap between what it wants to do and what it actually does. So learning becomes action to reduce the gap between your aims and your outcomes as an organization. So an organization like DFID will say, hey, you know, I want to help to reform, you know, the security sector system in Burundi. Therefore, this is, you know, that means integrating the, the two militaries into a unified military. And then learning would be, you know, gathering and processing information about whether the type of integration of the military that they're trying to support is actually happening and then making quick decisions to come closer to that aim of it happening in the way they want it to happen. So the basic kind of dependent variable or outcome that I look at first is, are these organizations in fact learning? If they are set up only to respond to global stakeholders and their global bosses back home, that means that they are highly unlikely to learn because they have no regular feedback mechanism from the people and institutions that they're trying to help in Burundi, which means that they're set up not to learn. 
And so what I look at is under what conditions can these organizations actually learn? Under what conditions can they actually respond to local dynamics and, and, and the needs of the Burundians themselves and not just the needs and preferences of their bosses back home? And here's where the formal and informal accountability come in. So essentially what I find is that a lot of these different organizations were able to create something that I call informal local accountability. They were able to find a group of local stakeholders, Burundians who actually understood, were invested in, and had really important knowledge about the project that they were implementing, and they were able to involve these people in monitoring the project, right? So they were able to actually create an accountability system that was Burundian, not one that was just global. And this gave them this regular feedback about what was working and what wasn't working in their project. But as with any organization, you can't pay attention to all of the information that you get. You know, it's like a lawyer looks at a certain situation and actually sees the legal dynamics. A doctor sees the medical dynamics. Learning and kind of processing in organizations is similarly bounded. So the organization is going to look at that information coming from those Burundian stakeholders, and it's going to pay attention to information that is relevant to its primary mandate and to the things that it's accountable for. And so that's where formal accountability comes in. So an organization can actually perform in relation to its peacebuilding aims if it is if it prioritizes those peacebuilding aims above other aims, say above development or humanitarian aims, and if it has informal local accountability, these kind of informal consultation and feedback mechanisms that enable it to get information on whether or not it's actually doing what it wants to do in relation to its peacebuilding aims. I see you categorize your cases in these four types based on those factors, the peacebuilding learners, the micro-adapters, sovereignty reinforcers, and stagnant players. And can you tell us about these four types and how they may help us understand a country office at a given moment in time? Yeah, and I think the fascinating thing for me about these four types is that no organization is able to actually sustain a position as a peace-building learner. And what I saw from the cases that I look at is that most organizations organizations moved between at least two types. And so the idea that you can kind of predetermine how a country office will behave, you know, how the office of the United Nations operating in Burundi will behave is flawed because there are other factors beyond kind of basic structure and basic accountability structure that determine this behavior. So what I set up in the book is that you have these kind of peace-building learners, which are the ones that I just described. So there are these nimble organizations that have very strong informal accountability relationships. So they've found, found a group of Burundian stakeholders who actually can give them different perspectives on what they're doing, and they have involved them in their work. And they also, their headquarters and all the messages that they're getting from headquarters say, hey, listen to what's going on and take action in relation to your peacebuilding aims, right? So these are the organizations which, were, which are much more likely to achieve their peacebuilding aims. 
So let me just give a, a particular example. So the Burundi Leadership Training Program was arguably one of the most successful programs at this. And it was working with a group of um, leaders across political parties, across um, regions, across ethnicities in Burundi, across from civil, across civil society, former rebels, this kind of broad representative group of people who they identified as leaders for good or for bad, people who could actually help to take the country in the wrong direction or in the right direction. And, and the BLTP, in order to actually first identify those leaders, but also to kind of sustain these kind of training and network and dialogue process that they supported, they invested months of their time first in figuring out who these people were, who were the right people to have at the table. And then they created and arguably spent like a quarter of their time during the entire process of implementing their project to consult, to, um, to engage all of the kind of key people who they had actually trained in their quote unquote training program to engage them to say what's working, what's not, and what are new opportunities. And what ended up happening for the BLTP, so what I just described was their informal local accountability. What ended up happening for the BLTP is that this resulted in an opportunity for the BLTP to help to reintegrate the Burundian military. So the basic setup in the Arusha Agreement was that the rebel group would be integrated into the army. And it would not kind of be integrated in an inferior position, but the rebel groups would be integrated into the army kind of in a more equal position. The problem is, is that many of the members of the rebel groups had never been formally trained. They were much younger than people within the army. They also were Hutu. The people in the army were Tutsi. There were lots of divisions between these two groups that were trying to create this newly integrated Burundian Armed Forces, which was arguably the most important part of the Arusha Agreement and the most crucial aspect of advancing the peace process. And so they were not able to, the representatives of the army group and the rebel group were not able to agree on the kind of status of combatants, on who should have which post, which position, and which type of authority in this new armed group. Sorry, in this new um, in this new combined military. And they called the BLTP in to help them because the BLTP had previously trained members of both the military and of the rebels and had gained trust with them. And so members of the military came to the BLTP and said, you know what? We're not able to reach an agreement we're not able to move forward. We know and trust in your process that you're able to actually help us understand our adversaries, to actually see the possibility in what they're saying, and to actually develop some empathy that supports a conducive negotiation process. And this was based on the kind of Harvard negotiation projects getting to yes process, as well as other kind of well-established dialogue processes. And so the BLTP came in it trained the rebel groups who were, who were negotiating the kind of units within the rebel groups who were negotiating the status of combatants. And it trained the units within the military who were negotiating the status of combatants. And after the BLTP training, 
there was a breakthrough and an agreement on status of combatants that enabled the integration of the Burundian military to move forward. And so what this shows of these kind of peace building learners is that because the, the BLTP was constantly getting feedback from the people that it had trained and its broad network about what was working and what wasn't working and what it was doing and what new opportunities were to work better, that it was able to take advantage of this crucial opportunity. It was constantly learning and adapting and was therefore able to see a crucial opportunity. And it had the confidence of people within the military that it had built over time to be able to arguably contribute to a very crucial breakthrough in the peace process. So that's just the peace building learner. The kind of other types, the micro adapter, kind of typical example of a micro adapter is a is a national, sorry, is an international non-governmental organization that say is working on humanitarian relief in a particular location and gets lots of regular information about whether it's actually delivering its aid to the right people in the right place, but it's not focusing on peace building. Right. So it's adapting. It has informal local accountability and it's adapting to that specific context and those specific people. But it's not paying attention to the relevance to the kind of broader political and security context. And it's not really even trying to achieve peace building. So it's adapting and taking action to reduce the gap between, say, a humanitarian aim and outcome, not a peace building aim and outcome, because it lacks this formal accountability for peace building. It only has informal local accountability. Then you have the sovereignty reinforcer, which has formal accountability for peace building, right? And so the UN often fell into this place where the United Nations was mandated to support peace and security in Burundi, and this is particularly the UN mission. But it, it did not, in, in most cases, it did not set up strong and formal local accountability, right? So it was focused on what the Burundian government wanted, who also happens to be a member state of the UN and also therefore one of the UN's bosses, is focused on responding to the preferences of the state, not to the broader civil society, political party, community, stakeholders, needs, preferences throughout Burundi. And so therefore, it is reinforcing the sovereignty of the state. It's focused on peace building, but only in relation to the to the way that the state, the Burundian government, and the key people in that government actually view peace building and its priorities, not in relation to the broader state and society in Burundi. And that's problematic because peace building aims to transform the relationship between state and society. So it aims to make the state more responsive to the breadth of its citizens. Then you have the stagnant player which um, in my cases, DFID and UNDP fell into this category. And the stagnant player, and I think that CARE International actually fell in at a particular point. The stagnant player is kind of doing what it does in spite of the conflict dynamics happening around it. So it's doing kind of the same governance intervention, and this was in the case of UNDP, doing the same governance intervention, the kind of same type of program during the war, during Burundi's transition, and after the war. So it wasn't asking itself, how have these dynamics of the conflict and what's happening in this context changed the way that I should think about my aims and what I should be doing? 
And it wasn't asking, you know, what are the perspectives of local stakeholders on what I'm doing? Is it working or not? It was just delivering, just implementing projects kind of in spite of the conflict dynamics surrounding it. So it's interesting because with these different groups that you were just talking about in the context of the examples of your uh, four types, you visit them over the period of 15 years. And as you mentioned, you see them sometimes go through different phases and how they're being effective or not effective in peace building. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got information from those organizations and your research process and how you interacted over this long time frame to kind of track these different variables over time and, and to include in different circumstances within the country. Yeah, I mean, this is a in, this is a difficult study to do because of the time dimension and because of the access dimension, meaning that I had to get agreement from each of my case study organizations to allow me to look internally at what they were doing. Which means that the kind of sample that I have, the cases that I have are actually biased toward organizations that are already somewhat open, right? That believe that learning is important, that are willing to let a researcher come in and actually look at what's going on. And there are kind of two different ways that I, that I, succeeded in doing this. I mean, one, one thing that helped me out a lot was that I had actually lived in Burundi and worked for the UN prior to starting this research. And so I had connections, I had legitimacy, I wasn't somebody just coming out of the blue. And so people already had a sense of who I was and, and, and how I would approach this research. Um, second, you know, I um, also guaranteed the anonymity of anybody I talked to, right? I said, I will talk to, you know, I will make, I will talk about your organization and I will, you will, and how I cite you be affiliated with your organization, but I will not actually say your, your name, of course, and I will not indicate your position and I will do whatever I need to do and actually citing you to make sure that nothing you say will be directly attributed to you. And so this meant that that people had some kind of certainty about anonymity, but that anybody who was really concerned about protecting the reputation of their organization wouldn't have let me do this. So all of these organizations already had to be open to some type of exploration of how what what was working and what wasn't working. And and the work that I did with them was through. Um, kind of multiple data sources. So one data source were actually evaluations that I was contracted to do by these organizations, not by these organizations, but by their donors. So I did several independent evaluations and, and prior to doing these evaluations and or after the evaluation, I got consent to, to use the kind of broader evaluation material, which was made public as well. And so I was able to, by evaluating these organizations get a real insider view into what was going on. Um, And from an informed consent perspective, you know, in research, one thing that's extremely important is that the people who you're getting information from actually consent for you to use that information 
in the way that you tell them you're using it. And so what this meant is that in the book, even though the book actually builds on over 400 interviews, I only directly cite a subset of those interviews that I did just for the dissertation piece of the research, not for the evaluations. And when there's information in the evaluations that that I need to use, I actually cite the evaluations themselves. Um, So in addition to that, I did an, an enormous amount of kind of archival work, asking the organizations for information about what they did over time. I was in Burundi in 2002, 2004, 2005, 2008, 2010, 2013. And so I went back periodically to to actually interview these organizations and see how things had changed over time. And in that sense, I also was able to Uh, a lot of staff changed over that time period as well. So I was able to kind of offer some continuity in my analysis, even when the staff themselves had changed. You mentioned some of the constraints of an organization like the UN, which is an international organization. And you talked about some of the success that BLTP experienced as an international non-governmental organization. And you also speak about bilateral donors in this book. So with that in mind, did one type of organization do better than others? Was that a um, a factor in what you observed? You mean type being international non-governmental organization versus bilateral donor? Right. Right. So the, the, three, the three types of organizations that I deal with in the book are international non-governmental organizations bilateral donors, which means a, you know, state or government that gives money to another state or government, right? So in the case of DFID, that's the UK government giving money to the Burundian government. And multilateral organizations like the United Nations, in which case I have UNDP, and I have um, the peacekeeping missions and peace operations in Burundi. So multilateral organizations or organizations that are set up by a group of states to actually achieve aims that, that these states arguably cannot achieve on their own. And so the, the very one important lesson of, of the findings here is that no organization is set up to be a peacebuilding learner. And that is because being a peacebuilding learner depends on this informal accountability. It depends on the creation of accountability mechanisms, processes, relationships with local stakeholders to whom the organization is not formally accountable. So no organization has to create informal local accountability. Informal local accountability is created when individuals within the country office decide to take the risk, take the initiative to actually create it which is fascinating because it means that the success of these organization, organizations relies on having the right people in the right place at the right time who get what needs to be done and understand that this is highly political work. That means that you have to involve and integrate all the different political and domestic stakeholders into what you're doing. And, and that's nothing that's actually mandated by any of these organizations. So in that sense, no organization is set up to be successful. It's because they have some of the right people in the right place at the right time that they are. And because they have formal accountability for peacebuilding. 
But in the actual results, what I see is that the BLTP tended to be the one that actually achieved this arguably the most, right? Although there were two points in time over this kind of these six critical time periods that I looked at in Burundi. There were two points in time when they were microadapters, when they were kind of just responding to their little niche context, but not paying attention to how the broader context in Burundi had changed. But I think that you can, you could argue that these smaller, more nimble non-governmental organizations may have a much easier time at creating informal accountability and at responding to local feedback. That once you get into this kind of huge, massive, you know, UN operation of thousands of staff, then it's much more difficult to ensure that there's informal accountability across the board, right? That you have across all of those staff, people who are actually going to engage with local stakeholders. And so what I saw in the UN cases is that at one point in time, the mission, which was called BNUB, it was the integrated UN mission in Burundi, that they had some very innovative kind of peace building programming and learning happening. But they had what I called pockets of learning, that they were only able to kind of create these informal accountability mechanisms and adapt and learn in relation to the to the conflict context in Burundi, they were only able to do that in, say, you know, just a handful of cases rather than across all of their interventions because the organization was so big and because it required this highly political investment, whereas the UN is incentivized to actually deliver and achieve results in a short period of time, right? So its challenge, the challenge of the UN is size, and that's a challenge of a lot of multilaterals and the focus on delivery. The challenge of bilaterals like DFID is spending money and actually not size, right? The challenge is that these organizations and bilateral donors are often too small. And so bilateral donors are incentivized to kind of spend large amounts of money or to spend their money quickly. And so they're often judged about, you know, did you disperse by the end of the year the amount of money that you said you would disperse? And so in order to do that, they end up subcontracting to private contractors, to non-governmental organizations, to the UN, to national non-governmental organizations. They ended up giving money to them to actually implement projects and programs. And that's the way that most bilateral donors are set up, or they give money to the government. But they often have a very small staff in country to do that. So they're not able to ensure, once they give that money, they're not able to ensure that there's informal local accountability, that there's this process to kind of monitor what's going on. And so they end up focusing on kind of giving money and end up incentivizing the NGO who receives it, or the UN who receives it to spend the money rather than focusing on ensuring that this peace building intervention is actually relevant to the Burundian context at that point in time, which requires informal local accountability and requires on the donor's side what I call kind of accompaniment-focused accountability, that rather than the donor just focused on kind of ensuring that the NGO that receives its money is complying with its 
accounting regulations and rules that the donor instead says, you know what, I want to help to engage with you in problem solving. I want to be part of your informal accountability mechanisms. I want to actually support you in figuring out how to do this difficult work in this difficult context. And that requires time and staff attention. But donors themselves often say, you know, we want to spend as little money as possible on our staff and we want to get as much money as possible to the population. And what that does is it means that these country offices are often highly under-resourced. They don't have enough people to actually be able to go around and figure out and support the effective implementation of all the different projects that they implement. So in this sense, I don't think that any organization is fully set up to be a peace-building learner to succeed. In some ways, smaller is better, but also being small has huge consequences if you can't actually go out and engage and monitor and create informal accountability routines for all your different projects that you're doing. Knowing all of this and understanding that these organizations are are kind of set up to fail in some ways and are relying on the ingenuity of individuals, what should policymakers do to improve peace building outcomes? So I think that there are several things that policymakers should do. The first thing is to kind of burst the myth that accountability to policymakers in Washington, D.C., New York, London, wherever, that accountability to them somehow leads to better performance on the ground. That there's a perverse incentive here. The more focused you are on accountability to Washington, D.C., the less focused you will be and the less time you will have to focus on what the Burundian people themselves actually need. So accountability does not mean performance. And that's really important because most policymakers think that accountability, the the more that they can guarantee accountability to them for how money is spent, where it's spent for results achieved, that the better things will look on the ground. And it's often exactly the opposite. So to kind of burst that bubble is the first thing. What that means is that policymakers at headquarters need to decentralize authority resources, decision-making to the country level, to their staff at the field who have the knowledge and the connections to actually make things work. And they need to see, the headquarters people need to see their role not as being kind of the experts to tell people in the country what to do, but rather as being the people who can support and help to enable the people at the country level to function well. So that means, do they need a particular type of technical assistance? You know, do they need their back covered because they're taking a a key political risk by challenging something that the government wants to do in that country, right? Do they need, you know, a new analysis? Do they need more staff on the ground? Do they need more money? I mean, to really see that the locus of effectiveness is at the country office, level and that headquarters needs to do everything it can to support that. And that's a real kind of shift in the thinking, but it's also a kind of shift in the kind of patriarchy of international aid where somehow people in the West think they know best, right? They don't know best. It's the Burundians who themselves know best. And so the question is, how do you engage with 
a kind of big enough group of Burundi Burundians that you're going to integrate the diverse perspectives and ensure that what you're doing helps to kind of unite rather than divide people. Second, I think, or third, I think that policymakers need to really take seriously the idea that that innovation and ingenuity are extremely important. And so an innovation and ingenuity of their staff. And so this means they need to think about which people are they hiring? Where are they placing them? And then how are they encouraging them to actually take smart risks? So in the international aid industry arguably has become even more risk averse, particularly as aid any kind of international aid actor feels enormous pressure to demonstrate results, to demonstrate the effectiveness of what they're doing. And in the end, what you see is that that has led people to actually be afraid to engage in informal local accountability, to really hop on those crucial opportunities, such as helping to reform the armed forces in Burundi and the kind of risky, uncertain work that that entails. And so what you want as a policymaker is you want to say peace building is high risk because we do not know what actually helps a country to go from war to peace, right? We want to actually enable people to try new things, to experiment and to learn quickly. And in many ways, in relation to kind of how Silicon Valley work looks at this, to fail fast. If it's experimental, you want to learn very quickly whether it's working or not and then try something new. And in order to do that, we need to not focus on reducing, reducing risk. We need to focus on creating a space and a place for smart risk, right? To enable people to take risks, to try new things, to innovate, to engage with this complex war-torn place, and to learn from it quickly and to have the resources and support to do what they need to do. And so that's a question of both the incentive structures that are created by an international donor or the UN or an IGO, but it's also a question of whether they're hiring the right people. And the more kind of constrained that an organization becomes, like the UN or a donor, then the more it kind of squeezes out those innovative people who might be able to engage in that kind of smart risk-taking. And so these organizations need to think about the profile of the people that they're hiring and how they actually can retain people who are able to innovate, take risks, learn quickly, fail fast, and essentially do the difficult work of implementing high-quality peacebuilding interventions on the ground. And so that's actually kind of who those people are, what they look like, what those conditions are is actually a kind of topic of a new research project that I'm working on because we don't have that much knowledge about that. Well, that's a good segue because we've taken up a lot of your time, but I'd love to hear about what you're working on now. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about that research project. Great. Thanks, Beth. Um, so this new project is called um, Rule Breakers or Innovators? Question mark. And the basic question is, these individuals who exist within IOs, you know, multilateral organizations, INGOs, or bilateral donors, and are able to create informal local accountability, often by going against some of the rules set up to make them accountability on, accountable only to their global stakeholders. So the takeaway is that some degree of 
possibly bad behavior by individual staff at the country office may be necessary for good performance, right? That these kind of individuals who are able to innovate and possibly, possibly break or bend rules, that we don't understand who they are. We don't understand who they are in terms of their age, their gender, their nationality, their history in the organization, what networks they have, how they're able to kind of move between organizations over time, or if that has mattered, how the organization's structures support or kind of discourage this innovative behavior. behavior. We don't understand any of that. And as a result, we've attributed a lot of this to kind of standard organizational structures, and that's used to explain success or failure. But I find that it's not organizational structures only that explain success or failure, it's individuals, and therefore we need to understand who these individuals are. So that's what this new project is, really trying to kind of dive into who individuals are who are able to innovate in spite of these kind of bureaucratic routines and structures that are working against them. Um, And they're there's a related project that I have, which is called, um, it's with Jess Bryce White, and it's called Networks of Influence and Support. And the basic idea is that also when we understand, if we're trying to look at peace building performance and how different actors operate on the ground in, in war-torn countries, we need to not just look at a single actor like the UN or a single donor. We actually need to look at networks because the basic model is you know a donor like diffid gives money to the un for something the un gives money to an ngo an an international ngo the international ngo gives money to a national ngo that it's not like any of these organizations are operating on their own and if organizations actually set up strong informal accountability routines, and they've actually formed these kind of networks with other organizations, possibly national organizations, civil society organizations, other donors, to actually enable them to do their work. And therefore, if we're going to understand the effectiveness of international intervention, we need to understand it not just in terms of individual actors, but in terms of how networks develop, where organizations and individuals support each other in doing this kind of complex, difficult work. So those are two kind of projects that I'm that I'm pushing forward right now. Those sound interesting. Hopefully we can have you back on when when those wrap up. And thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Beth. It's been a true pleasure. Appreciate your time. Global Governance and Local Peace, Accountability and Performance in International Peacebuilding by Susanna Campbell is available now in paperback from Cambridge University Press. Get 20% off by using the discount code GGALP2019. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.